We're continuing our studies in the book of John and the miracles that uh, John recorded. He selected out a, a just certain few because they had a certain flow that he wanted to teach. And so uh, we're working in John chapter 6 today for our text. And we'll also be looking at Matthew chapter 14 as we look of of Christ feeding the multitudes there. John chapter 6, Matthew chapter 14. My mother had a certain habit that I observed over and over as I was growing up. Late on Saturday afternoon, she'd go to the kitchen and start baking. Usually it was a cake. Well, naturally, I go to the kitchen with her and try to feel her out so see if I could get a piece of that cake. (laughs) But when I asked, she always gave the same answer. She said, this cake is for company, which means I couldn't have any. So I would ask and say, well, when is the company coming? And she always said, Sunday afternoon which meant, no, you don't get any now. (laughs) It's for company. Well, then I said, okay, who's coming to visit Sunday afternoon? And she said, I don't know. Which, of course, made me think she was using company's excuse uh, from letting me get a cake. But she always said, if company comes, I want to be ready to serve them. And that was really her intention. No one ever visited without having coffee and cake. She had a reputation for caring for people. And sometimes they were people uh, who didn't quite fit into society. But she was right. Almost every Sunday afternoon, we had visitors. One thing I particularly remember, though in the early years when we were really poor. Uh, She didn't have ingredients to make a chocolate cake or a cream cake or anything fancy. Uh, She had a recipe for something called eggless spice cake. It was a cake that she could bake and not use eggs because eggs were too valuable as food And we had to eat the eggs as food. So she made this eggless spice cake with a few raisins in it. It tasted pretty good. So any visitor to the Olson house always got a piece of cake, always. Even if it was eggless spice cake. And they were always well cared for at my mother's table. Today... We look at the fourth miracle that John records in his gospel. First, you recall, was changing water into wine. The second one, healing the nobleman's son from a distance. The third one, healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. And now we come to the feeding of the 5,000. And John's record of this miracle adds certain things left out by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As a matter of fact, it seems what leads up to the miracle is almost more important 
than the miracle itself. There's an atmosphere that surrounds this event. There's a feeling in the air that helps to define what this miracle is all about. So let's look and see what happened just before this amazing event so that we can get it in our minds, the feeling of the people as we come to this amazing event. But we're looking at Matthew 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. And he that is King Herod sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. When the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. So here we have this horribly violent and evil murder of John the Baptist. King Herod had John the Baptist's head cut off and they served it on a platter. If you can imagine it. John the Baptist had been a wonderful light to the common Jewish people. They loved him. And they especially loved the way he called out the religious big shots in Jerusalem. The name he used for them was a bunch of snakes. (laughs) Now suddenly he's murdered in this violent way. And there's no justice There's no remedy. In evil violence, he's murdered. And the people feel a frustration. And they feel a fear. You see, when the government does something evil, you just don't have the power to fix it. You don't have the power to change it. When the government chooses evil ways particularly something awful like this, the people are frustrated and they're afraid. They have no power over government, no way to make it right. They feel helpless. And so they have only one place that they can think of to go. In their frustration and in their helplessness, they go off looking for Jesus. Now John chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. After these things, and those things are the murder of John the Baptist, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The great multitude followed him, and they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. So Jesus and his disciples take the boat, the fisherman boat that Peter and John had, and they go across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, not far from the shore, and they just 
follow the shoreline up, and they go up to a place that is out of Herod's jurisdiction. King Herod had jurisdiction in Capernaum where they normally fished. So they're going to leave Herod's jurisdiction, go to a safe place, and on the northeast shore, they go up along the Sea of Galilee. There's great big green fields up there, full of grass and rolling hills. It's away from the towns, and it feels safe. And so Jesus and his 12 disciples climb up on a hill and sit down. But as Jesus and his disciples sail along the coast, there's the people gathered out of the cities and towns, and they follow them. They're running along the shore. Coming out of the cities, they see his boat go by, and they're running along the shore to follow him. Now it's almost Passover. And Passover in Israel was, is like Christmas here. It's the happiest holiday of the year. And it's a time when people are supposed to be happy. Of course, it's hard to be happy when they just cut John the Baptist's head off and served it on a platter. It's rather like what we experienced when the coronavirus took the fun out of Christmas. <laughs> you know what I mean? But Jesus gets up and he looks across the hills down towards the lake and he sees an amazing sight. Hundreds of people coming from all directions. Wait a minute, look again. Thousands of people coming to find Jesus. So he makes a comment that these poor, frustrated, depressed people are searching. And they look like shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to make things right. They long for some direction and help. And so they're actually running after Jesus as their only hope. And he sees what large numbers are coming. And Jesus begins to think, these people are coming to see me. And just like my mother, I must take good care of my visitors. So before the people have arrived, as they're streaming up through along the lake and up the hillside, uh, Jesus has a question in verse 5. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So before the people have all arrived, Jesus is standing by Philip, and he points towards the crowds, and he says, how are we going to buy bread for this crowd? Now, why did he say that to Philip? Well, Philip's one of those people 
who say, show me and I'll believe it. That's the kind of guy he is. We hear him talking a couple of times in the scripture. Nathaniel says to Philip, is that Jesus really the Messiah? Philip says, come and see with your own eyes. You've got to see to believe. Philip is that kind of thinker. At the Last Supper, Jesus is talking about these deep spiritual truths. And Philip perks up. He said, show me the Father. I want to see him. I want to see him. So Philip has that show me and I'll believe it attitude. So when Jesus says to Philip, how are we going to buy bread for these people? Philip does what he does best. He takes what he can see and he starts to calculate. First, you've got to estimate the size of this crowd. If we're going to buy bread for him, we've got to estimate the size of the crowd. So he's counting the groups as they're coming, estimating, look, at there's a big group, another group. And there's probably 5,000 men. And then more in women and children. Now, that, my friends, that's a lot of people. We do Thanksgiving dinner here for 200, right? We do it for 200. It takes us all day Saturday and half the day Sunday. This is 50 times more than we serve. That's a huge, huge crowd. Philip's counting, getting the number. Next, I'm sure... Philip goes to Judas Iscariot because Judas handles the money bag. He's got to calculate how much money is available. So how much money do we have is the next calculation. If there are 10,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, and we've got X number of dollars... How much bread would that buy? So, there's one more calculation. If we could buy, let's just say, 50 loaves, or whatever our money can buy, how much would each person get? Well, <laughs> if you take one slice of bread and cut it into quarters and we got a little piece that big uh, maybe everyone would get one mouthful <laughs> so what else can we calculate well by now the disciples have been all introduced to the problem well we can go and see if we got anything here to add to the total and Andrew finds a boy with five little loaves, like a dinner roll size, and two fish. Now the loaves are barley bread, cheapest quality bread available. They're sort of like eggless spice cake. They're not luxuries. They are basic fare. And the two fish. Now don't get the idea these are big fish. These are like sardines. They're small fish that the fishermen caught and used to flavor the bread. It's not meant for a filling meal, but rather for flavoring in the barley bread. So, 
it's taken a while to make all the calculations. And after all that is done, it doesn't make any difference. There isn't enough for the crowd, no matter what we do. Particularly this crowd. And so we come to the last calculation. And I'm back in Matthew, verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place. The time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go to the village and buy themselves food. And so that's the last calculation that they make. We can't do it. We can't. There's just not enough. The day is getting late. And the only solution is to send these people away. We just can't possibly feed this crowd. Now, back in John 6, verse 6. This he said to prove him, for he knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one may take a little. So one of his disciples Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which had five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Now, notice carefully. Jesus is trying to prove Philip and all the others. He's testing them. It's a test. It says that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He already knew what he would do. Can Philip guess what Jesus would do? Well, no one has ever done what Jesus is about to do. And in all of Philip's calculation... He left out one thing. Yes, he knows how many people there are. Yes, he knows how much money is available. Yes, he knows they can't buy enough bread for everyone to eat. He knows the only way to feed them is to send them away. And he knows we do have five loaves and two little fish. But that's certainly not enough. But one thing Philip did not include in his calculation. He did not consider what Jesus could do. You say, how can he know? There's no past history. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just a minute. Go back, Philip. A few months ago, in a little town called Cana, what happened? Well, that was the very first miracle. Philip was there, and the wedding party ran out of wine. So Jesus made 130 gallons of wine by turning water into wine. They had run out, and there was none. 
And Jesus made more than enough without even leaving his seat. My friends, think about this. One of the most disappointing things for Jesus is when we don't have faith. He is constantly asking his disciples, where's your faith? Why don't you believe? We don't count on what Jesus can do, and it's a great disappointment to Jesus. If the disciples would have said, now back in Cana, you supplied the need when uh, the supply ran out. Can't you do that again? Will you do that again? Listen, my friends, Jesus' guests are never going to be sent away hungry. His table will always be set for whoever wants to come and dine. If Jesus has done great things in the past, do you believe he can do them in the future? It's called faith. Do you trust him? One thing for sure, he waits for us to believe enough to step out and count on it. I can't fault the disciples far as I'm concerned, because I fail in the same way. I sometimes don't include him in my thinking. And I need to do that, and we all need to do that. But by my calculations, when I look around a congregation, I don't have sufficient means to meet the needs of the people. And the more people and the more problems people have, the less I feel I am able to help. All I can do is point to Jesus and say, look what he did. I'm sure he can do it. I'm sure he can do it again. So Jesus begins in verse 10. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place so that the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now it says they sat in groups of 50 or groups of 100. And it's the disciples who go sit these crowds down, separate them into groups. And there's somewhere around 200 groups. If you do the numbers, there's somewhere around 200 groups that are spread all across this green, grassy hillside. They're spread all over, and the disciples are setting them down. And people, I'm sure, are asking, why are we setting us down? (laughs) They said, all I know is Jesus said to sit down. So sit down. And sometimes, my friends, is that just the way it ought to be? Jesus said to do it, so we're going to do it. And then we start verse 11. Jesus took the loaves. When he'd given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. And the disciples to them that were set down, likewise of the fishes, 
as much as they would. It's an amazing miracle. Nobody can figure it out. The question always comes, did he multiply the bread right in his hands? Did he take that loaf and break it? And break off the other side and break off the other side? Did he multiply it in his hands? Or did he multiply the bread after it was in the baskets? Apparently, no one could tell which way it was. They just watched and he kept filling baskets and filling baskets and filling baskets. I wonder how long it took. Did it take an hour to feed 5,000 people? Or 10,000 maybe. I don't think you could break that much bread in an hour. He must have been doing it for two hours. Just breaking five loaves and two little fish. It's quite amazing. There is a prayer that the Jews used to say before their meals. It comes from this time. And it was their grace, the way they said grace back then. And it was this. Blessed art thou, Jehovah our God, King of the world, who causes to come forth bread from the earth. <laughs> but maybe Jesus didn't use that old standard prayer of thanks. Because this bread didn't come from the earth, it came right from his hands. Somehow it came right from his hands. If you think of what it takes to make bread, they always thought that bread was the blessing of God, sun shining on the earth, wheat growing, harvesting, developing, was all a gift from God. Only this bread came in a couple of hours from zero to nothing. He defies the laws of physics would say that matter can neither be created or destroyed as he makes that bread right from his hands. Yes, it was barley bread. And yes, the small fish flavored the barley bread. But it said everybody ate until they were filled. Plain and simple, yet sufficient. Thank you, Jesus, I'm glad. And notice, just like the wine in Cana, there's more than enough. Verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. God's blessing are not in short supply. They come from the all-sufficient hands of Jesus, and you can be sure he's got plenty and then left over. My friends, of all the things that Philip calculated, the smallest and most insignificant thing that he calculated was five loaves and two fishes in the boy's basket. 
that barely was worth a mention. And Philip thought, collect all our money, go buy as much bread as we can find. That's a better solution than five loaves and two fishes. And in Philip's hand, the five loaves and two fishes remain insignificant. But add to those five loaves and two fishes Jesus' blessing, and they can feed countless thousands. So Jesus waits for us to calculate with his blessings in mind. If you can think of what's in his mind. He looked across the field and saw hundreds and thousands of people coming towards him. And his first concern was, how shall we feed them? They were sad, fearful, and frustrated by the death of John the Baptist. He spoke with them. He taught them and comforted their hearts. They were feeling that Passover was going to be very unhappy this year. So he healed their sick, all of their sick. And that Passover was made one of the best ones ever for a whole lot of those people. And then he blessed that little basket of bread and fish and served their, them dinner until their bellies were full. See what Jesus did? Met all their needs. He makes all the difference in the world. If we're going to do God's work, we need to include him in our plans. But most of all, we've got to treasure his blessing. We need his blessing. We've got to search out his blessing and don't be satisfied till you have it. Find it. And if you're not in a place where God can bless, then get there. There's a, there's a river of blessing that flows from God. Don't stand on the outside of the river and say, bring it over here. Get in the river. Get in the river. And don't disappoint Jesus by not including his power in our possibilities. He said this, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you won't have room to receive. So take him at his word and be blessed. Go home comforted. Go home happy and go home full. That's what happens to people who come to Jesus in dark times and in difficult hours. They are comforted and they go home happy and full. May God bless you as you look to him for his blessings. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust in you We can find help in time of need. And in dark days, we find good things when we trust in you. We know you've come to lift us up and fill us up. 
and we want to go home full. And so we thank you that we can come to you and your blessing will pour out on us. We believe in it and we ask it in your precious name. You will hear us, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song in closing, page 265. I need thee every hour. Seems like an appropriate one for today. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Standing as we sing 265, I need thee every hour. closing word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we look to you for strength and help and know that we do need you every hour. We ask you to come and be good to us and open up your heart to us. We thank you for your word. Encourage us to calculate in a new way thinking about what God can do. So bless us, Lord, we ask that we might remember these things. Make them a part of our thinking. We thank you for all the folks that listen in on this day, that you will be good to them, each and every one, wherever and however they have done it. Be with them, we pray, and bless them all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.